This is an SBC Media Partners production. Swung on, hit high and deep. Right field. Good 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 it is Phillies fans, these are your glove stories with Murph. Let's check out Greg Murphy. Murphy, got a special guest, huh? Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Glove Stories with Murph. And uh, this week's guest is really kind of the, the epitome of what we're trying to do on this podcast because uh, his story really is one of the great love stories of, of all time. If you, if you stop and think about what he was able to accomplish and we welcome in our good friend, uh, Chris coast, uh, who folks remember, of course, from the world series team in 2008 in Philadelphia, but his story is so much more than that. Coasty, good to see you. Hey Murph. I appreciate you having me. You know, I'm so immersed into, you know, this new life and baseball still a 365 situation for me. But anytime I get a chance to talk Phillies and, you know, my story as well, but just to be part of the Phillies, uh, just these conversations, man, it, uh, it makes my week better. That's for sure. Well, awesome, because we love to hear the stories. And, uh, yeah, you're sitting on a team bus right now. You're the head coach of Concordia uh, out there in Minnesota. And uh, yep. you guys have a game later this afternoon, so we appreciate you taking a couple minutes to chat with us. But, uh, you know, kind of, I, obviously, you were a, a young athlete and a good athlete growing up, uh, but uh, your story really does begin at Concordia. That's where you played your college ball. Was there a moment uh, in, in college when you started to think to yourself, you know, I have a chance to play pro ball. I, I can make this happen. Yeah, those moments popped up, but it even starts before that. So when I was in high school, we didn't have high school baseball. We just had Legion baseball, but we'd play 60 to 70 games. I had a pretty good Legion career, but I wasn't really recruited much. So I actually went to a junior college for one year out near Chicago, and I just just I was just a pitcher, which looking back, it's just as amazing because I, you know, I went to junior college as a pitcher. I made the major leagues as a catcher. That's a million stories in between there, but just those two related are interesting. So I went to that one year, had a pretty good year pitching. I knew that wasn't my future. I was a good pitcher, but I wasn't great. I came back and played summer ball back in Minnesota, and I started swinging the bat. I decided to transfer to Concordia, who now I'm the head coach of. I had three really, really good years, and it was really after my junior year that the maybe the professional aspect of it might creep back in. Before that, I was just trying to be the best player I could, try to win, love baseball. Maybe I'd get into coaching one day. But after my junior year and then after my senior year, I, I had, you know, three great years. I assumed I would have a chance to get drafted, even if it was, you know, in the 70th round, because in those days it would go pretty deep. And I was just, you know, just give me a uniform. And I'll, I, I knew that I could surprise people. It's just what I've always been able to do. And when I wasn't drafted, I was crushed. It was, uh, you know, I had three great years at Concordia. Uh, I had succeeded at most any level I was at and all of a sudden to be not drafted I thought my baseball career was over I got really lucky of the timing of independent baseball because back in those days independent baseball sprouted up around the country especially in my neck of the woods Uh, St. Paul who is now a Twins affiliate but for many years they were the staple of independent baseball and they showed people not only independent baseball but how minor league baseball needs to be run behind the scenes on the field things like that. Uh, Fargo, my hometown, they got a team in that league at the exact right moment. They gave me a, just a minimal shot to make the team. And, you know, I ended up not only making the team, but once again, surprising people. That was kind of my mantra is I will surprise you. I just kept saying, I'll surprise you. And people started catching on at different levels, but really so Concordia got me to independent ball. And then from independent ball, you know, there's a million stories there as well. 
Yeah. And, and, and so let's touch on that because, you know, so many guys, uh, great talent go through, uh, and don't get drafted and go into independent ball, but the dream starts to die with them. Um, and it, maybe it's, it's just because it's a difficult road to travel. And maybe it's because not enough eyeballs are seeing guys playing in the independent leagues or what have you. But, uh, but for you, I would imagine knowing you and knowing your personality, you were telling everybody that would listen, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to get there. I'm going to make it one of these days. And, uh, you know, this is just, uh, this is my platform that I'm going to play right now, independent league ball. And you made the most of it. Did you not? Yeah. yeah. And I would say that independent ball, minor league ball, it's not an easy life. For me, it was a really easy life. And the <laughs> reason why is because I never doubted that wherever I was, I knew I was in the right place at that moment in time. I always wanted to reach higher and surprise people and things like that. But I always knew that I was exactly on the path where I needed to be at that moment. I never doubted it. I always wanted, you know, one more step and fighting for it and surprise people. But independent ball and then the minor leagues, the reason why it was easy for me is because being a baseball player, and this is going to maybe I make sure I phrase this right. Being a, a minor leaguer or a professional baseball player wasn't something I just did. And it wasn't something I just loved to do. It was, it's who I am, you know, and therefore when I got up in the morning, that's who I was. You know, I, my, I was blessed with an amazing wife. We've been together since high school. So she understood the life and that's not always easy. I'm sure Murph, you've seen plenty of cases where, that uh, players have to make decisions for the benefit of their family. Sometimes life comes calling. For me, it never did because my life and my wife and my eventual two daughters who grew up in the life, they got it. They just, it, it for them, they were as invested in my career and my path in life as, as I was. And, and that also made it easy. Yeah, no doubt about it. But that said, on a daily basis, the grind that is the minor leagues or the grind that is independent league baseball, traveling by bus from town to town, late nights, early mornings, uh, you know, not a whole lot of folks in the in the stands, all because you want to get to a place. It, there it takes a, a little bit of mental toughness in order to continue to get up each day and have the attitude that you're talking about. Yeah, and I would say the phrase I use to people is to to succeed in this life, unless you have, if you have Bryce Harper ability, and obviously he's worked incredibly hard too, but he has upper level Mike Trout upper level ability to where their their path was going to be pretty good either way. But when you're someone like myself who had to, you know, fight and claw and be my best every single day to, to surprise people, the phrase I use even to our college guys, but the independent guys that I manage, you have to love this game unconditionally, not just when it's good to you, not just when you have four hits at baseball the baseball life at its worst you can get through it if you unconditionally love the game a lot of people love the game there's a lot of people a lot of players who love baseball but it's more so when it suits them the guys like me and there's plenty of chris coasts out there guys who had more success maybe some had a little but there's a lot of stories like mine out there and the biggest reason why they're able to hold on is because they love the game no matter what, regardless if, if baseball kicked them in the tail or baseball was good to them. Baseball was tough on me sometimes. It's pretty darn good to me as well. <laughs> yeah, no doubt about it. You know, I, so take me to a time, uh, whether it be an independent league or, or minor leagues, where you really had to convince yourself of that mantra of yours. But, you know, I, I, I got to believe there's a two o'clock in the morning bus breaking down story or, or there's, a, you know, I, you got to go out and prepare the field because the grounds crew, you know, ended up, you know, taking off or whatever, you know, 
it's it's not the big leagues yet for you and there's a lot uh there's a lot that goes into just being able to play the game that you love right i think one of the things i was also lucky with in my my path to the major leagues or even just to get signed by uh, uh organizations was i started out independent baseball in a really good place in fargo we were getting four thousand fans a night they treated us like major leaguers uh it was a novelty for the town, so the players were treated like major leaguers. They became kind of household names back in those days, so we felt like celebrities. Making 700 bucks a month, but we felt like millionaires. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's the funny thing, right? Yes, buses breaking down, staying in hotels where AC just was not going to work, you know, things like that. And But but that was, that was part of the life. But, you know, for me, I went from a really good place in Fargo to – Akron, Ohio, when I got signed by the Indians, and five weeks later, I'm in Buffalo, New York, which at that time in the year 2000 was probably the best place in the minor leagues to play. A lot of fans, the ownership still to this day is an amazing place, and so I was, I went from a really good situation in Fargo, oddly enough, to being in Buffalo, New York, and then after Buffalo, I bounced around from Buffalo to Pawtucket, Indianapolis, Scranton, basically AAA for the most part. Right. And so I didn't have to really battle it out in the low levels of the minor leagues. And I think that's another reason why it was easier on me than some other guys, because back in the independent ball days, it was such a high level of play that on a given day, it was a double A level and they treated us great. And then all of a sudden I'm in AAA. So, and then eventually the big leagues. So I think for me, that helped make it a little bit easier than, than maybe other guys like myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny, all the little things that have to happen to kind of tell your story to get you to to where you finally did get to 12 seasons in the independent leagues and the minor leagues and then uh you finally well you're getting close and you know you're getting close and you're uh you know you're getting looks from the big league clubs you're at spring training you're when did you say to yourself you know hey you're uh, you were 31 32 years old at this point when did you say to yourself hey this is going to happen for me did was there ever that moment where you thought this is going to happen before it happened no <laughs> Simple answer, no. And, and you know, in 2002, I was a AAA All-Star with the Indians organization in Buffalo, and then 2005 with Scranton AAA All-Star. But there were a lot of players better than me, at least I thought as good or better than me, that that also weren't making it. There were players that were lesser than us that were making it for whatever reason. Some of it's positional, some of it's based on organizational needs. It's sometimes just luck of the draw. So there was never a moment where I said, oh, I'm going to make it. But it wasn't that I didn't believe it would happen. It was just I was never convinced of it, you know. I was really also very lucky to have coaches and ma managers all throughout my days that were big believers in me. I would always tell them, I'll surprise you. And they left the door open for me to surprise them. And so I had a lot of, I had managers, you know, Eric Wedge with the Indians organization, Gene Lamont with, uh, in Scranton in 2005. And they would always stay positive with me. And they would tell me, Kosi, you're going to make it one day. You know, to me, it almost seemed too good to be true, but I was going to do everything in my power to make it happen. And then finally, you know, in 2006, I told Charlie, Charlie, I'm going to surprise you. <laughs> and Charlie was the only one crazy enough to give me a shot. You know, like I'd go to, I'd go to major league spring training every year, but basically it was, I was the older guy. I was, I was there to catch extra bullpens and play late in the game. And Charlie was the first guy that, that thought, man, this guy can catch because that was my biggest hurdle was proving to major league organizations, the, yep. the decision makers that, that I could catch. And then Charlie believed it. And all of a sudden Ruben Amaro Jr. Saw it as did Pat Gillick and things like that. That was really the biggest step of that 2006 spring training. That was maybe the first time to answer a question that I, 
I thought, man, this is going to happen. And of course, out of spring training, it didn't happen. Right. But really, Charlie Manuel was the first guy crazy enough to believe I could play in the big leagues. Crazy like a fox is Charlie Manuel. That's that's yeah. for sure. Yeah, he, you know, he sees things that that some of us, uh, many of us, don't see, and and he saw that. You told a yeah. great story uh, in uh, 2000 about 2006 spring training. You you hit a home run against the New York Yankees in Tampa. Uh, and you were rounding the bases and you were looking at the guys at first at second and it's short. Can you, can you relay that moment for you? Because again, sure. at this point, you're what, 32 years old at that point? 30? 32. Yeah. 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 32. And it's, I believe it was a split squad game against the Yankees. So I went and I started at third base, you know, and he, and in two, this sort of would have been probably 2005. So that year they kind of had me slated as a third baseman. I would catch some bullpens and help out, but they had me, slated to be their triple at third base and so i started that game at third base i, I made uh, the game earlier in the game i made a really good play against Derek jeter not really a big deal thing plays like that happen but i think i got a 1-0 pitch and hit it hit a homer and as i'm rounding first base i see tino martinez and i see robinson cano and then i see i'm rounding second base and Derek jeter standing right there and he whispered something like you know way to swing the bat something very subtle i see a rod over at third i cross home plate I got Jorge Posada, but even before that, as I'm not even getting to first base, I'm like, Joe Torrey's just right over here. As I, for that moment in time, I was the king of the field. It didn't last very long, obviously, but for that one moment in time, all those superstars and Hall of Famers got to see me. Uh, the, it was like a time machine just stopped time, and yeah. for that 20 seconds, I was the man. That was pretty cool. Yeah, and you know what? And to me, I, I honestly, I get chills hearing you tell the story because – that's what makes baseball so special makes baseball different than any other sport that moment when you you are the only person that matters in on that diamond that you yeah. know as you round those bases uh you know future hall of famers are all over the place uh and uh and you get that moment and yeah it, it's something you never forget you know obviously yep and it's it's funny because after that there were so many great memories you know, big leagues, World Series, but that moment for me stood out because once again, I, Reggie Jackson was in their dugout. I was a huge Reggie Jackson fan growing up because I just didn't know any better. And then you realize I have Minnesota, I'm a Twins fan. But when I was like <laughs> six, seven years old, Reggie for me was the man. I ate his candy bar at least twice a week, and it wasn't even a very good candy bar, by the way. It was but okay. it was at the, but at the same time, it was like it was Reggie. So Reggie was in their dugout and things like that. So moments like that, you just you never you never regardless of, i could have gone on one 10 world series that moment would be something i'd never forget yeah no doubt about it and then of course your major league debut you you, you eventually do get the call uh you did, didn't happen right out of spring training but you get the call you're going to be a big leaguer and you know it, it was such a great story at the time it's still a great story you know the the philadelphia media i, I think you know embraced you and you certainly embraced the idea of hey i'm i'm a 33 year old, but I'm making my major league debut. Uh, we just had a story a couple of weeks ago where it happened in major league baseball. I think, uh, the guy was 36, right. For the Braves that, yep. uh, that just came up yep. and, and instantly we all think Chris coast, because here's a guy that, uh, loves the game so much and gave so much to the game. And it was finally, uh, at, at the big league level, given something back. That's the way I looked at it. Yep. And when guys like us chase that dream for so long, when we get that call, there's a massive feeling of disbelief. Obviously, joy, exhilaration, like you'd won the lottery, but at the same time, it's like, is this, is this really happening? Because when I got my call, another day that I will never forget, it, although it does still feel like a dream, but I get the call. I, you know, I had that amazing 2006 spring training, didn't make the team. 
five weeks into the AAA season, I'm thinking I'm going to be hitting about 400 because I was motivated. I felt good physically, mentally, everything. I was, I mean, all these things. And five weeks into the season, I'm hitting 177. Uh, John Russell was my AAA manager at the time. And when I saw his name on the caller ID, I did not answer the phone because when you're hitting 177 in AAA and your manager calls, oof, that's not a good thing. So I didn't answer the phone, went to voicemail, took the voicemail. Voicemail was, Coasty, JR here, give me a call back. We got some things to talk about. I paced back and forth in my room for about 10 minutes, wondering where my career was going to take me. Will another organization sign me? Even though I was hitting 177, I had a track record of success. So maybe the Red Sox signed me. Maybe the Mets signed me. Somebody, right? Just anybody. Or is it time to think about my coaching and then managing career? Because another thing for me was I just, my plan was if I never made the major leagues, I, was, I would play as long as I could go into managing, make the major leagues as a coach or manager. I just felt mm -hmm. that was built for it. I prepared for it my whole life. So the longer I played, the better I'd be at that. No more people, so on and so forth. So I'm not even thinking about a call-up. And so call him back. He's, he didn't have a lot of time to really play around with me like those guys want to yep. because the game in Phil I was in Scranton. The game in Philadelphia started in about two and a half hours. He's like, uh, get your bags back. You're going to Philadelphia. Didn't know what he meant. I thought he meant my flight back to Fargo was through Philadelphia. And I was like, I got my, I got my car here. I don't need to, to, to fly out of Philadelphia. He's like, no dummy, get your bags back. You're going to the big leagues. You're going to Philadelphia, you're going to the big leagues. And I, I threw an expletive in there. I think my, the people in the rooms all down the hall heard me screaming because I thought there was no way. I sat down in my bed real quick, pinching myself. Is this a dream? Still waiting to wake up from that dream, by the way. So it's, yep. uh, yeah. So I, when I got that call, it was totally unexpected, truly amazing. Tell me about the phone call then to your wife, because she had been <laughs> with it through the entire time with you. Right. So this would have been May 21st, I believe. My daughter's birthday would have been five days previous. So it was a Sunday morning. So my daughter was going to be finishing school soon. So before they join me they always my family and my wife's family would always throw them a little going away party in conjunction with my daughter's birthday they were at like a holiday inn or something at the pool they rented a bunch of rooms and things like that and then so when i called her anybody that i would have needed to call was basically in that room at the time so when i told her of course she lost her mind and she's screaming and and, and she, i wasn't there obviously but the, the people were telling me that when she was she started crying and trying to tell people what was going on they thought someone had died because my wife was all emotional and things like that. So it was obviously, as you can imagine, a pretty emotional moment. I'm driving down the road. I had just got off the phone with Ruben Amaro Jr. explaining to me, you got to sign your contract and you got to do this and you got to do that. And I'm trying to tell my wife I'm going to the major leagues or we're going to the major leagues. And she didn't have to fly to Scranton anymore. She's going to be able to fly directly to Philadelphia in a, in a week. That, that was pretty cool. Oh, it's very cool. And, and, and obviously life-changing again. And, and so then you're blessed enough to be a part of this, this core group of guys that has started to come together in 06 and then obviously 07, the postseason, and it, it culminates in 08 um, with the world series team. So during that time, as, as things came together and I've asked other guys, the same question, when did you get the sense that, uh, that, well, you know what? we have a chance here to, to not only just to make the postseason, but which hadn't happened in Philadelphia forever, but, but to maybe win a world series as well. I think there's a few different answers you'd go with, but for me personally, it felt like the second half of 06 right after the trade deadline, because we were sellers. We traded away Bobby or Brayu, mm -hmm. Corey Lytle, and you know, it made sense. We were 
we felt, I'm sure the organization felt we were a couple years away and, you know, Chase Utley was still young, turning into a superstar. Ryan Howard was on his way to an MVP, was just for a kid of the year. Jimmy Rollins was a superstar in the making, things like that. So, but, but you could kind of see it coming. You could see that these superstars or future superstars were going to be in their prime at the same time. We had a great little run at the end of the 06 season. We, mm-hmm. we fell barely short, but we, we were sellers. And all of a sudden we made a run. We, on paper, we were better with Bobby Abreu. But for whatever reason, when Bobby Abreu was traded, it became Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley's team. And Pat Burrell, to a certain extent, Pat Burrell was an amazing leader as well. But really, that trade, as awesome as Bobby was, and he's a superstar and so on and so forth, it, the leadership changed. It was now these guys' team, and it, and, it, and it showed. It was really uh, – and then, of course, 07 is a whole other story, too. So, yeah, yeah. With, with with Jimmy's prediction. But, uh, yeah, that moment in 06, and I remember it because I was covering the team in 06, but I remember thinking to myself, uh, they've made a decision to turn it over to the young guys, and and it ends up being one of those decisions that uh, changed the franchise for real. Yeah, say that last part again. I'm trying to get off the bus here. Wrong guys. <laughs> so, all right, now we're good. I, just, I said, Ooh, you know. I'm hearing thunder. I'm hearing thunder. You, you get that. Well, that's not good for baseball. Uh, you, yeah. At that moment, uh, people in Philadelphia kind of understood that, that the, the guard had changed, that they were handing the, the reins to the young guys of this organization and saying, you're the, the guys that are going to take us there. Bobby, Bobby got you so far, but the young, the young guys, that young core is going to take you the rest of the way. Right. And, and I also believe I, I couldn't have been there at a better time because, you know, Philadelphia has a reputation for maybe not being the easiest place to play as a player, but I never got to experience that because when I was there, things were not only pretty good, they got so much better. Yeah. And not only that, I think the Mets kind of helped us out too, because the Mets back in those days, I mean, 06, kind of an intimidating group to a certain extent. I mean, it was, you know, Jose Reyes running out of that dugout and the crowd would go crazy. And, and they just on at the time in 06, they were just better than us. Um, but leadership took over. Obviously, Jimmy Rollins in 07 saying where the team to beat was a huge moment in Philadelphia sports history. And Chase Utley wouldn't say things like that. But that's what Chase Utley believed, and that's the way he played. So, And then Pat Burrell behind the scenes, too, was an amazing leader, along with many. There's a lot of guys I could name. But once again, once it became Jimmy Rollins and Chase Utley's team, holy cow. And then Cole Hamels did his thing. And obviously, uh, you know, Pat Burrell, we had Aaron Rowan before the World Series and just, you know, older leadership with Jamie Moyer and things like that. It really uh, – that that trade in 06 was, was really – people kind of forget because two years later it took us, but really – more thunder. You hear, you, can you hear that? Yeah, I hear that now. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At least it's well, we're in Minnesota. At least it's not snowing. So. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, yeah. I'm going to let you go in a minute, but I want to, I got to touch on uh, just the 08 playoff run and the World Series. Um, you know, for folks like myself who was covering the team, fans of this team for, you know, 25, 30, 40 years, such a magical time as you guys made your run through the postseason. And really, it seemed like you got better from September 1 through October 31st. It just seemed like the team got better every single night. And it got to a point where we didn't think you were going to lose a game again. Is that how it felt in that clubhouse too? Yeah, certainly. And it, and it wasn't easy because it wasn't a foregone conclusion. We were even going to make the playoffs. Right. I, I don't, the wild card was not going to come from our division. I think we clinched the division second to last day of the season. Like right. the previous year was on the last day. So 
like I said, we went on to win the World Series. I think a lot of people forget that. We almost didn't even make the playoffs that year. Um, but, yeah, down the stretch. And I think, you know, halfway through the year, once we realized that Brad Lidge was going to be the Brad Lidge that we all needed him to be, because, you know, there was a couple years where Brad Lidge kind of, he lost his mojo to a little bit, and Philadelphia couldn't have come into his life at a better time, and same him coming into our lives. But it was like we knew that once Brad Lidge took them out, but, you know, Ryan Madsen in the eighth, J.C. Romero. It's truly amazing when you look at our relief core that year. They were not supposed to be nearly as good as they were, and I think they were second in the league in ERA, our relievers were. You know, J.C. Romero was a cast-off. Scott Ayer was a cast-off. Chad Durbin, nobody really wanted him except for us. Clay Condry, who people forget, had about a 3-3 ERA that year um, and won us some games. And so then, and then Ryan Madsen in the eighth, potentially, and, and of course, Brad Lidge. We knew that we could score. We knew that even if our opponent scored a few runs early, at some point we were going to get to five or six runs. Our opponent was going to be less than that at certain points. That we knew that no matter what the first inning or the fifth inning or seventh inning brought, we could win a game in the eighth or ninth inning. And in today's game, that's where the teams struggle. I mean, the major league teams who struggle can't win games after the seventh inning. We could win games after the seventh inning. Yeah. Yeah. And won a bunch of them that way. All right. You win the world series. And, and finally the final chapter, uh, at least of that season, it is the parade and everybody has a great, uh, Phillies parade story. What, 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 what is your memory of, uh, of that trip down broad street and just the, you know, tens and tens and tens of thousands of fans that were out there. It was, uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the first, uh, players float. I think there was some front office. And of course, Pat Burrow was up in the front. So, the first player that everyone saw was Pat Burrow and his dog, but I was on the first uh, full flow of players. So a lot of times the fans, we were the first players that they would see. So it was yeah. like, it was like the first minute of the parade never stopped. It was constant emotion. The fans seeing us for the first time, even though we had gone through it for a few hours, every minute of that, I, the emotion was, I, we were exhausted. When that day ended emotionally, the intensity of the fans in that parade was, it's, it's really hard to describe, but I remember when that was done and that parade was over, it took us about three days to recover mentally because of the emotions. And it was truly amazing. Of course, the Chase Utley phrase and Cole Hamill speech, Charlie's speech, so on and so forth, things like that. It was, you know, Jason Worth standing up with that, the, the Hulk fist he had on. We all have some photos of that, but that parade really was the emotions running on the field when we won the world series. It's hard to top that, but for basically five hours of that parade, it's hard to put into words how powerful, how powerful that was to shoot because as players, we did in fact know we were sharing this with the fans. My world series ring has been on thousands of fingers because I can't wait for other people, Phillies fans to see it, try it on because yes, I own it and it's, it's going to be my daughter's one day, and it's hopefully it's her kids one day. It's my ring, but I share that with any Phillies fan who wants to put that baby on. I just make sure I have a bottle of hand sanitizer with me everywhere I go. <laughs> yeah, now it is. <laughs> but that's the way we got to be. Coasty, I, I knew you were going to uh, be able to tell some great stories, and uh, you did not disappoint. Uh, you didn't surprise me because I, I knew that this is what, what, what this was going to be all about. I appreciate your time. I hope you get your game in today as those skies don't look very friendly behind you. Yeah, it's a little rough, but like I said, if it's not snow, snowing, we can handle it. Beautiful new ballpark. I don't know if you can you can't quite see much of it, but nice new ballpark here with turf. So as long as it's not raining at the time, thunder and lightning go away, we'll, we'll be good.
you'll be good. Well, Coasty, great to talk to you. It always is. We appreciate the time and uh, best of luck with the college season finishing up and the independent league uh, straight ahead. And we look forward to seeing you back in Philadelphia at the ballpark sooner rather than later. Yeah, thanks, Murph, for having me. I appreciate it. Great seeing you. We're back with that Phillies P on your chest. And as always, uh, you know, I appreciate it. Working with you back in the day. Hopefully do this again another time. But, hey, go Phils. Giddy up. Go, go Phils. All right. Chris Coast, thanks for being with us. All right, welcome back to Glove Stories, and it's time now to relive a game from 1980. We welcome in Larry Boa to help us do that. Good to see you, Larry, and I'm going to test your memory today because we are going back to June 16th, 1980. Let me set the stage for you. The team came into June two games back in the East. You were playing pretty much streaky baseball. You lost the first three games of the month, then you won the next three, and for the rest of the month, it was one win, one loss. You're playing about 500 ball. But you had just finished a homestand where you had won five of your last six. So the team was starting to come together a little bit. And now you're headed west to play the Dodgers, the Padres, and the Giants. And it was a two-game series, which is a little odd, out there in L.A. And L.A. was a nemesis of this team. So (laughs) it felt it probably felt pretty big. So the first game in L.A. was Randy Lurch and Jerry Royce. And, And, you know, you look back at Randy Lurch and what he was able to do for that 80 team. Uh, he's a guy that probably we don't talk enough about, right? You're exactly right, Murph. I mean, this guy, he was very competitive. And anytime you have him at the, your four or five starter in a rotation, I think that's a pretty strong rotation. Yeah. And he seemed to pitch pretty good on the West Coast. And we knew leaving here, when you go out to the West Coast, I don't care what their records are. That's a tough trip. And, and you yeah. know, now you only go out there and maybe play two teams. But we we play all three of them. We had a day off every now and then out there. But as you said, we were sort of just staggering along at 500. We started getting everything together. But every time we played in L.A., we knew it was going to be a dogfight. I mean, you take a look at that lineup. They have those infielders that played together. Then in the outfield, they got Dusty Baker, Reggie Smith, Rick Mundy. They had the best pinch hitter in baseball in, in Manny Moda. Their rotation was unbelievable. But those two left-handers, they sort of mirrored each other. Royce was a power pitcher, though, and, and Randy Lurch had – more of a good breaking ball. He could throw, throw pretty hard, but he relied on his control. But it, we knew it was going to be a tough matchup going out there, regardless of who we played out there or what their records were. And we were able to come away there with a win. Yeah, you were. All right, so let's let's go through it because it was a you know a, a night game out there in L.A., beautiful ballpark, and I'm sure the atmosphere was really good. And 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 the two pitchers were excellent that night. The bottom of the third, Lurch allows a one out single to Davy Lopes, and he moves over to second on the fielder's choice. Then with two outs, a single by Reggie Smith scored Lopes, followed by a double by Steve Garvey. And you know just the names, <laughs> Davy Lopes, Reggie Smith. Steve Garvey, for a pitcher, getting through this lineup must have been a bear, right? Murph, that's a tough lineup to navigate through. I mean, there were no easy outs. You go all the way even down to their catchers where they had, uh, I think it was Jaeger and Sosha, who either one of those guys could hurt you. Uh, And, of course, the all-star infield was Say and Russell and Lopes and Garvey. Garvey was an unbelievable RBI guy. Yeah, I mean, uh, he had these Popeye-like arms. He was a real big guy. He wasn't very tall. Very good first baseman, though, as far as scooping balls out there. But every time he came up with men on base, usually something happened. He, he, he didn't strike out that much. And then you got the rest of their thumpers up there. And for Lurch to hang in there the way he did, uh, I thought he, he pitched a pretty good ball game. 
you know, I was going to bring up something about Jerry Royce. I talked to a lot of players today and they go, you guys didn't know what it was like hitting off a cutter. Jerry Royce, he was the guy that initiated the cutter. It wasn't a slider. It was right over the top and it broke a little bit, but it was late and on your hands. And he was one of the tougher guys we had to face in the Dodger rotation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you guys faced enough good pitching. I think, I think it's uh it's fine to say that. All right, look, uh, Phillies come right back in the fourth, uh, one out Rose singles, then Schmidt doubles in the game, second and third. And the bull is up and Royce balks home a run. Uh, I can imagine maybe Rose on third dancing over there or doing something. He, but. Murph, no matter who you're playing, if he was on third base, he was trying to distract the pitcher. <laughs> and whether it be, you know, he, if you look at his stolen bases, not that many, but he would give you a false start and get yeah. the pitcher's attention. And, you know, he makes some guys mad. In fact, he made some of our hitters mad. Schmidt and <laughs> Bull, they didn't like to see that because it distracted him. But I'm sure, I, I don't recall, but I'm sure Pete did something like that, like he was going to steal home. And I don't know why those pitchers panicked like that because he didn't steal that many bases. But right. he caught the attention of Royce, and it was a balk. And that was a big run at the time. Absolutely. And and it's so funny because as I was going through the game, that's exactly the way I picture him, too, just all antsy down there on third. So, yeah, right. big moment in the game. And, and it kind of foreshadowed a later moment in the game. We'll get to that. But next pitch, Lozinski hits a sack fly. And just like that, the game is all tied up at two. And then the pitchers really take over. Both pitchers pitch into the 10th inning in this game they had nearly identical line scores both went 10 innings pitched two earned runs seven hits for lurch five for royce one walk and five strikeouts uh will we ever see that again no in fact <laughs> i don't think you're going to see that for a long time but yeah. that tells you something about how the rotations were set up and you didn't have eight guys in the bullpen right. so you stayed with your starter you know and you usually give them the first three innings to find a groove once they find a groove you let them go but those two guys got locked in out there and at that time, Murph, the air was different out there in L.A. There were very seldom home runs hit at nighttime in L.A. During the day, there was there were some home runs. But that park played very big at nighttime with the air coming off the ocean and everything. And it turned out to be a pitcher's duel. But you got to take your hat off to uh, to Lurch. You know, he, he stayed in there and, and, and matched pitch for pitch. Yeah. And we were able to come up with a win out there. Yeah. And so Ron Reed would then come in finally to, to relieve in the 11th uh, Sutcliffe comes in for Royce to relieve him in the 11th, but we go to the 12th. It's still tied up at two. Uh, you single with the, with one out in the 12th. So you're on board Sutcliffe balks you over to second. So I'm, I'm thinking you're over there doing something, <laughs> no, something I was, to distract him. I remember that I was going to steal because Sutcliffe was pretty long to the plate yeah. and he threw over a couple times. And then he gave me that move where he, he gave the, the the bent front leg and the umpire did call a balk. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Joe West might've been the umpire because Joe always would wait till the late, late part of the game. Cause he wanted everyone to notice who, and I think he called the balk if I'm not mistaken. And of course I got to second base then. Yeah. And Joe then, West was the second base umpire in this and game. I'm sure yeah. it was Joe West that did yeah. that because I I'm trying to think back and Joe would, we would always call him late inning Joe because he'd be umpiring. No, no qualms about how he was umpiring, but eighth, ninth, seventh, eighth, ninth inning, 
something weird would always happen and Joe would be in the middle of it. And some things never change in that <laughs> regard. It's amazing to think that he's still out there on the field. Uh, but uh, yeah, good call on your part. All right, so you single and and then you get to the second on the ball. Manny Trio comes up and he doubles you home. You guys uh, get McGraw coming in to shut it down. Four straight wins. You win that first game out in LA. And, and again, middle of the season, nobody knows the importance of it, but this team was starting to find their identity at that point, I think. Right. And we were in a dogfight with, with Montreal and Pittsburgh at the time. And we knew every win was important, especially when you go on the West coast. Uh, but I can't say enough about Ron Reed. You know, people say, Oh yeah, he was a good reliever, but he, he did so much for our ball club to yeah. get to Tug McGraw, him and Warren Brewster. They were unbelievable. And of course, Tugger comes in and he got more than a, I think it was a four out save. It was more than just, if I remember right, he was out there to get an out maybe before the inning started. I'm not okay. sure, but he, he had a lot of those four and five out saves, but, but Ron Reed to me was an unsung hero on that pitching staff. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, uh, you know, we talk so much about the Zadie team, but there are a couple of guys that we probably don't talk about enough. And in this particular game, when you, th you talk about Lurch and you talk about Reed, guys that, uh, that really did make a difference and, and help you guys get to where you needed to be. So you win that game. Uh, you take both games in L.A., then you head down to San Francisco. It didn't go as well down there, but uh, we'll talk about that on a, on a different time. But right now, okay. uh, we'll say goodbye to uh, Larry Bow, and we'll see you next time on Glove Stories. And we welcome you back to Glove Stories with Murph. And time now to look at the 2021 team, this Phillies team that uh, is playing about 500 baseball as we sit and do this interview. And I welcome in my co-host from the Baseball Brunch Show on Sunday mornings on 102.5 Fox Sports, The Gambler. It is Chris Sack. Sack, good to see you. Uh, it's great to be with you, partner. Thank you for having me. You got it. All right, let's talk about this team because uh, we get a chance uh, to do it every Sunday morning. But uh, one of the things that uh, we've talked a lot about is the importance of the top end of this rotation for this team. And, you know, Nola and Wheeler both had moments uh, earlier in the season where they didn't look like themselves. But over the last couple of days, we've seen the best of Aaron Nola and some really good Zach Wheeler as well. Yeah, Zach Wheeler on Monday night was just outstanding. Uh, that's that's a throwback matchup right there, Murph, uh, between yeah. him and Adam Wainwright. Uh, two hours, 22-minute baseball. Both of the starting pitchers went into the ninth inning. It was incredible. We were texting about it, and, uh, you know, I got, got a little scary there with Hector Neris, but, you know, that's, that's something that we're used to. Uh, and then Aaron Nola, yeah, he made one mistake on Saturday uh, to McMahon, who hit his seventh home run of the season. But uh, but that start prior to that, and even even like there was a part in the fifth or sixth inning. I know you said this the other day that we weren't even sure if he was going to last into the sixth inning, yep. and, and you know he gave us seven. And uh, you know both of those guys, man, it, and along with Zach Eflin, if they can keep themselves right, it um, you know this team is going to win a lot of baseball games when they start. Um, it's a lot of it is about getting the fourth and fifth starter positions uh, corrected in the rotation. Yeah, and I think that probably can be said about the NL East in general when you stop and look, which is why the NL East is all kind of hanging around at 500, at least uh, as we sit here and talk today. So, uh, yeah, agree. They got to win the games when those guys are on the hill, and that's how they're going to be able to stay in this division race. All right, one of the real bright spots over the last uh, week and a half has been the young guy, Nick Maton, who has come in and not only uh, come in and kind of given this team a little spark and energy, 
but uh, kind of reminds us of uh, uh, an old number 26 at times. Uh, you know, the way he has gone out and played to the kind of energy he plays with. Uh, I don't want to compare him too much to Chase Utley, but he has been a very pleasant surprise so far. Absolutely. And, you know, I've started to think to myself, especially with the way McCutcheon has struggled, um, can he play left field and can he lead off? Um, you know, we, we could use that spark at the top of the lineup. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if Joe Girardi and the Phillies are there yet, uh, especially because they're not sure if he's going to be a long-term piece, um, you know, especially once Gene Segura comes right. back. And if McCutcheon does get going, uh, we, we addressed this the other day. I, I can see him going back to AAA to make sure that he can get, uh, you know, at bats. Um, and once May starts and, you know, the minor league baseball system, they start getting rolling, he's going to be able to play every day. Is he going to have that opportunity here? I'm not sure, but I'm enjoying what I'm seeing. Uh, he had a little bit of a rough go with Wainwright on Monday night, uh, two strikeouts, and then he had a ground out there. But I'll tell you what, I like his, his pitch selection. I like the way that he looks at the plate. He plays good defense, both at shortstop and second base. Uh, this is a kid that I want to try and find some place to put him. Uh, so Gene Segura, when he does come back, and Didi continues to get healthy at, you know, by playing every day at shortstop, if this kid can play left field and McCutcheon continues to struggle, I wouldn't mind throwing him out there and seeing what he can do. He might get that opportunity. His job right now is to make it a very difficult decision for them to send him back down at this point. All right, another big piece of news that happened this week was the center field situation uh, gets a new wrinkle. Oduble Herrera is finally called up and is placed uh, in center field for this team. Strictly from a baseball standpoint, I'll ask you first, can he help them win games? I mean, it can't get any worse than what they've had out there. I mean, Roman Quinn is batting 50. And mm -hmm. I know the other day I emphasized to you probably about five times that Jacob DeGrom, his ERA was 31. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to do that with Roman Quinn's batting average right now for you. But 50 is not good, um, you know. And, and then Hazley, whatever he's got going on, and Mickey Moniak, you know, he had a big three-run shot for us last week against the Giants. But um, even though he did play well defensively, I think a lot of those plays that he made defensively were were – due to his own mistakes, and then he had to catch up for it. Uh, Oduble is probably the best option for this team right now to play center field, both offensively and defensively. Uh, he made that catch on Monday night of, against Arenado right mm -hmm. at the track to, to, to cinch the game for us. But, um, yeah, I, I knew at some point we were going to see him, and I knew at some point it was going to be on the road. I just didn't know it was going to be this soon and before May even hit. Yeah, it, 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 you know, and it was forced, their hand was forced to bring him up. And I, I know it was a difficult decision for the organization. There's a lot to uh, take into consideration, obviously, with Adubel Herrera and, and the baggage that he does bring. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, the responsibility for this front office is to win baseball games. So I guess their feeling is at this moment, he gives us the best chance. I don't think we've seen the end of the carousel in center field, but there might be a little bit of time before they're able to bring someone else in. So, yeah, like I believe you said this the other day, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of baseball teams right now looking to trade away quality center fielders yeah. this early in the season. Everybody feels like they have a shot in April and, and, you know, for the most part, everybody feels like they have a shot in May. Sure. Uh, Trades start coming in June and early July. And if Dombrowski is going to make a move, um, you know, we don't have a great farm system as it is. So you're going to have to do this at a premium. Um, to me, in center field, I want to see somebody that can play solid defense 
and just get on base. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I don't need a guy that's going to hit three thirty, you know, three hundred even. You know, if a guy comes up here and he can give me, you know, one hit out of every four at bats and with a two fifty batting average and like a three twenty on base percentage. I'll take it. Um, but that's not what they're getting out of that position right now. I know Cruck was kind of scoffing at it on Monday night that they were like, you know, after I think O'Double's first at bat, uh, well, they're now batting 100. They're seven for 70 this season. And yeah. uh, I don't think O'Double did anything after that to, to uh, you know, raise that batting average. So, not yet. Not yet. Uh, but he's going to get his stay, opportunity. Yeah, yes, he, he is the latest guy that's going to get his chance, so we'll see what he can he can do with it. All right, uh, Chris Sack, we appreciate you being with us, my co-host on Sunday mornings on 102.5 Fox Sports, The Gambler, the Baseball Brunch Show. I will see you then on Sunday, but for, uh, for now, thanks for being with us for a couple minutes. Anytime. Thanks, Murph. Glove Stories with Murph is a presentation of SBC Media Partners. The engineer for Glove Stories is Chad Evans. Cindy Webster is our marketing and guest relations director, and our executive producer is Roger Hatt. Whether you are watching us on YouTube or downloading the podcast from one of the major podcast providers like Apple or Google or Spotify, make sure to hit like or subscribe so that we can let you know when a new episode of Glove Stories is available. We will release new episodes weekly through the 2021 Major League Baseball season.